The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. Please stand for a reading from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 and then 6 through 10. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. God said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. My name is Aaron Tolson, pastor of youth ministry here at LMPC. It is uh, very exciting for me to be back in the Ten Commandments. I feel like this is the heart and soul of our faith. I love studying these. I love teaching them to uh, our students and communicants class. Um, I will say it's been kind of a hard week. I think around Tuesday, I was like, okay, so that's my idol. And then Wednesday, Thursday, no, maybe it's that. Okay, there's a lot of them. There's a whole lot of them. Um, so it's been, uh, it's been really good study for me, very rich. Hopefully I can share that with you this morning. Uh, but it's so good. It reveals the love of God in powerful ways. So let me pray that he would do that, and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, you have loved, created, and rescued us. You've given us this law, revealing the wonder of it all and what, what your desire for us is. I pray that through our time in your word this morning, you would open our hearts to see, to believe, to hold on to the depth of your love for us. We would know you better. We would love you more because of our time together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so remember where we are. The Israelite people are entering the land of Canaan, where for 400 years or more, Evil has grown more and more wicked and deeper in sin. And so as they arrive, uh, what is being called worship in this time, the ways of worship in Canaan, they're so wicked, I'm ashamed to say them from the pulpit. I won't say them. I can't name them. Uh, we talked about this last semester. You can go to Leviticus 18, and you can read. It says, don't be like the Canaanites who, and then it just, with shocking specificity tells you what was going on and much of that was called worship to them and so being very general and pastorally sensitive it involved exploitation of the vulnerable of children it involved the murder of their people not enemies 
not outsiders, but those dearly loved, uh, their own people. So horrific acts of violence. What's going on is human beings say, we know how to worship. The more extreme, the more violent, the more suffering inflicted on ourselves or others, the more worshipful, the more obligated gods are to bless us. So God, in a world that is utterly confused about worship, puts his people and his commandments right in the middle of it. So, if the first commandment, I think we said, it's about who we will worship, and that, that's the one who created you, the one who loves you, the one who has rescued you, that's who we should worship. The second commandment is God telling us how we should worship him. God's revealing his heart for us, his desire for our worship. And it's, you're going to see it's a worship that actually promotes the life and community of his people. It preserves and strengthens that. God wants worship that actually celebrates his mercy, his compassion, his steadfast love. Uh, he does not desire worship that is violent, abusive, that exploits others, that destroys his image bearers. Any human form of worship that injures, abuses, destroys another, is evil before the Lord. So this is the best I could come up with. Imagine a pastor at a church is having his 25-year anniversary, and they come to him like, let's, let's celebrate what God has done. What would you like to do? What would make your heart sing? The pastor's like, well, okay, so there's this children's home we work with. Let, let's, let's go and do a service project there and, and share a meal together, and we'll bring gifts, like just generous gifts of things that they need and even things they don't need, and that would just make my heart sing. But instead, members of the church go down and begin throwing rocks through the windows. They, they begin to attack the caregivers, destroying their cars, lighting them up. Like, and I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to push it any further. But the reality is something far worse is happening. Like what is going on in the Old Testament is like, this is what worship is. This is what is being. And God's like, stop. That is so far from what I desire. I desire mercy and sacrifice and generosity and compassion, and you are doing this. It could not be more different. And so think about that. In a world where humans want to decide, which we would love to say, you're probably thinking you're very far from that, actually. You're like, that's way off from where we are, Tolson. Let's move along here. But if you've ever started with like, I like to imagine God is, is more like, I, I, I like to think God really likes it when, I like to imagine he's like, he's like you don't have to imagine. I'm going to tell you, this is what I'm like. This is what I love. This is what makes my heart sing. This is what you're made to do in a way that's going to make you flourish. You don't have to imagine and devise any sort of way to please me. This is what the heart of God looks like. So it's very important that we look at this together. Um, and think about the Ten Commandments really quick. I think a lot of times when we hear the law of God, we think, we think oh, the law, that's something I gotta, something I gotta do. That's kind of a burden, you know. But, but just stop for one second and think of the Ten Commandments. Number one, like, love the one who created you and loves you, who's real, who rescues you. Two, don't love something fake that doesn't love you back. 
okay, we're on a good, we're in a good spot so far. Like, hey, don't dishonor the one who like has given everything to make you his. Don't don't talk about him like that. Take a day of rest to dwell on his love. And then the rest of the commandments are what? Don't kill each other. Don't take each other's stuff. Don't take each other's spouses. Don't talk about each other and defame each other's names behind your back. Don't gossip and ruin other people's reputation. Like, have you ever had someone, like, defame you behind your back? That's painful. I remember as a kid, someone stole my bike, my first bike. I laid on the ground, like, fetal position. I had never felt, like, emotional wound like that in my life. I kept thinking of this person coming up and taking my bike. How, who would do that? We never caught him. The world God wants for us. This, I want to live in this community. A place where my things are safe on the front porch. Where people don't talk about me behind my back. Where they don't, they don't try to take the things that want, you know, doors unlock. It is a place of human flourishing. God loves us in this law. It is a law of love. And it starts with these two commandments, the first two. And I read this week, someone said, you can't break the last eight without breaking one and two first. So think about that. When something else takes the place of God in your heart, the other eight begin to fall like dominoes, don't they? I get angry. I begin to manipulate and talk about other people in ways that are ungodly. I begin to want things that are not mine, have not been given to me by the Lord. So these two are really important, and they're the heart of the rest, I think. So our outline says, in order to show us how to rightly worship the living God, that's what God's hoping to do, the second commandment provides three things. A necessary corrective, a sobering warning, which is actually part of an encouraging promise. So corrective, a warning, a promise. Um, We're spending almost all our time on the corrective. Verse 8, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So this is about as comprehensive a statement as God could make. Absolutely nothing from anywhere should be turned into an image for worship. So that means a couple things. God's saying, don't diminish me. Don't rob me of my glory and majesty by making me into this little figurine. Like it doesn't, it doesn't in any way represent me. Um, nothing that has ever been and all the places that have ever existed can represent me in my glory and majesty. But secondly, it says, and listen carefully. I think I've worded this awkwardly. Don't turn an image that you've created of something that I've created into something to worship. You ever heard of like when you start making a copy of a copy of a copy? <laughs> like it just gets more pixelated and harder. It just gets worse and worse. But God's saying, don't turn anything into an image to worship. Okay, so probably at this point in the sermon, all of you just pulled out your Ten Commandment checklist and were like, check number two. Let's wonder what's coming up with the Sabbath and the co- you know, coveting other things. Those are a little more relevant to me probably. Uh, but let me slow down. Um, I assume most of you don't want to kill anyone and call it worship, or you don't have probably many statues in your house that are false gods, but I want to ask, what's at the heart of this commandment? What is it about my human condition and yours 
that makes this commandment so important and the, the, the centerpiece to the rest of them. Really, we're asking, what's at the heart of idolatry? So let me, let me start with a question here. Why do you think people made idols out of all the things they see in the world? Why did they do that? So I, I think it's easy to think like they were like, ooh, bears. I love bears. They look soft and cuddly. Let's make an image of a bear. Dolphins? Dolphins are fun. Let's, let's, let's get a dolphin image. Like, like that's how it all starts. That's not how idols are made. That's not how they begin. And it's so important that we look at it. So the most popular definition of an idol that is out there is this. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you, what only God can give. Okay, so... Bear with me, I'm going to list a few of the gods in Canaanite culture, gods that the Israelites struggled with. I want you to listen to them and what they represent. Anat, the goddess of conflict. You ever been in conflict with someone? Ashima, goddess of fate. Astarte, goddess of hunting. Asherah, goddess of love and relationship and fertility. Baal Hadad, the god of storms, lightning and thunder, the weather. Chemosh, the god of war and destruction. Dagon, god of crops and fertility and grain and agriculture. Gad was the god of fortune and wealth. Kothar Wakasis, the skilled god of artisanship, craftsmanship. Mot, the god of death. Last one, Reshef, the god of disease, of plague, of healing. Thanks for bearing with me. Every one of those had some sort of image associated with it. They were either from the skies or the earth, but listen to what they represent. They don't start with an image. They represent a desire, a deep-seated human desire and fear that we have now given an image and a place of worship in our heart. Every idol, every false god, did you notice they represent something out of our control? Think about that. They're an area of life that feels chaotic, and it's an area of life that feels absolutely essential to happiness. Am I right? Things like disease, death, love, wealth, weather, which an agrarian society depends on, war, provision. All of these false gods are created to represent and calm a deep-seated fear of the human heart. What if my business fails? What if my relationship fails? What if war comes again? What if another storm comes through? There's a God for that. So as we're thinking about what are idols, what is a must-have? What is a non-negotiable for you? What triggers your fears more than anything else? That's where we're going to start to see our idols. So idolatry was not just about images. It's about what they represent. They represent fears and desires of the human heart. And we're going to step further into this. Listen to what Andy Crouch says about idolatry. Every idol is an attempt to gain an edge on the world. To have some leverage over chaos. Idolatry is an attempt to have some sort of leverage over the uncontrollable. 
Why? Because I value that thing more than God, more than nearness to God himself, whether it's financial success or romantic love or familial peace. We trust that it can heal our hearts more than God, that it will give more meaning to our life than nearness to God himself. So you probably heard those lists of gods and we're like, wow, that's a long time ago. But our list is probably not too different from the ancient Near East. When you think of what they represent, we haven't given our idols names, have we? We haven't personified them like Dal Jones and his evil brother Nasdaq and of the God of security, right? Instagram, God of acceptance and connection. Red Bull, the God of productivity and stress and anxiety attacks, right? Um, we have idols of romance, of beauty, friendship, familial uh, peace again. I mean, if there's gods of tuition, gods of college admission, you know, and scholarships, and god of children's academic, athletic, social success, those, those temples would be busy, right? But I heard myself say something this week out loud. And see if this resonates with you, and if it doesn't, thank the Lord and just pray for me, the rest of this illustration. I heard myself say this. I would do anything I would literally give up anything to make my life more like this. How I finish that sentence is only available to LMPC Plus subscribers. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to leave that there. Um, I literally say, like, I would give up anything to make my life more like this situation work out, this relationship. And then I actually started to think of the things that I'd be willing to sacrifice, not people. Um, but what would I be willing to give up? And I got more and more like bold in that, with, like things that I really treasure. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I would, I would give that up for this. Yeah, I would let that go. If, if I could just make my life more like this. I'm like bargaining and bartering with who knows who for my life to be what I think it should be like. You know, and to be fair, sometimes that's a godly passion, right? There's someone you love. Like, I want them out of this brokenness, out of this struggle. I would give anything for that to happen. But sometimes, for me, it is straight-up selfish idolatry. I would give anything for my life to be a certain way because, I think what's underneath it, I know better than God what would satisfy me. I know better, and he's not doing it. We're tempted to worship outcomes more than the living God. So remember Mount Sinai. Moses was up on the mountain. It's this terrifying firestorm over the mountain. And the people are waiting. And they're waiting. And they're waiting on Moses. They're waiting on God until they are done waiting. God didn't show up. Moses didn't come back. What do they do? They build a golden calf. Here's what one commentator says about it. He says, they wanted to get the show on the road. It was an effort to set the agenda and the schedule for God who wasn't coming through. You know what it seems I'm most at risk of idolatry? So I'm tired of waiting. When I'm tired of waiting on the Lord. He's not done what I think he should do in the timing that I think he should do it. And that thing that must have it becomes more important than anything else. And so I try to get the show on the road. I try to make it happen for him. 
And I do it in ways that dishonor him. I do it in ways that hurt others and, and destroy me as well. But it's, ironically, it's ironic that in these moments, that's often when I, I could most fully and completely lean into dependence and trust and realize Jesus is all I need. Have you heard someone say that? Looking back over their life, I wouldn't change a thing because of how I know Jesus. It's often in those moments, like, do you ever feel like you spend more of your energy fighting being in a dependent state? I want to make sure I don't need anything from anyone at any time, and I can take care of everything that I can take care of, instead of, like, pursuing trust and dependence with all my energy. Some weeks, I think I've spent more time resisting it at all costs. And ironically, it's in these moments where we can most fully lean into that. So I kept thinking of Mark 4 this week when Jesus calms the storm. What's amazing about that story is the disciples are following Jesus. They're literally, he's there and they're like stepping in his footsteps behind him into the boat. They're precisely where he wants them to be. And Jesus falls asleep in a storm so unbelievable that they, and these are fishermen, some of them, whose, whose life skill is navigating a boat. So there's two things that happen. They're in a storm, they think they're going to die. Their obedience to Jesus didn't protect them. Their obedience didn't protect them. Their abilities, the greatest skill they have, didn't protect them. And so one pastor says the reason they're so afraid is because they find themselves between an uncontrollable storm and an uncontrollable God. Wow. So that's, for me, that's the moment. That's the turning point. When I find myself between an uncontrollable future or an uncontrollable, you know, child or career or relationship or conflict and an uncontrollable God. And our obedience, our abilities can't produce the outcome that we desire or maybe even demand. In that moment, will I worship the living God without demand? Or will I grab the scepter out of his hands and try to take the throne? That's where my idols get exposed. So how, how do we trust an uncontrollable God? How do we protect our hearts from idolatry? I love what Jesus says in Matthew 12. Jesus says about himself, one greater than Jonah is here. Right? The stories are really sim similar. Jesus and Jonah both get into the boat. They both fall asleep. Great storm comes up to the point. Same words. The sailors say, we are dying. And they cry out. They both come to Jonah or Jesus as their last hope. But Jonah stands up. He says, throw me in and you will all be saved. Throw me in. You'll be saved. So how do we trust Jesus? When Jesus says one greater than Jonah is here, he says when the, the ultimate storm of sin and death the only storm that could ever destroy us, the one outcome you cannot survive, the outcome you do not want. When that threatened you, Jesus said, throw me in. Heavenly Father, throw me in so that you can make them your own. 
God said, I will literally give up everything. I will give up everything to make you mine. How do you trust an uncontrollable God? You look at Jesus thrown into the tide and being crushed for you. And Romans 8 says this, almost as if it was like meant to follow. What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how would he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And then he says this, think about our fears of acceptance, our fears of rejection, of condemnation. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who can condemn you? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for you. Your uncontrollable future is solid. It is secure in the hands of God. Christ is at the right hand of the throne, interceding for you. So he says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Think of all these things he names. Trouble? Shall trouble or hardship? Persecution or famine? Nakedness? Danger or sort? All of the uncontrollable things of this world? Can they separate you from Christ's love? Absolutely not. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors through him who loved us. And of course it ends, I'm convinced. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Daniel M. writes this, he says, It is worship that is the final way to replace the idols of our heart. So you can't just get relief by figuring out your idols intellectually, he says. I did that all week. Like, well, it's definitely that, 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 yep, that one. He says you have to actually get the peace that Jesus gives. You have to receive it. And that only comes when we worship. He says, through spiritual disciplines. So our analysis can help us discover truths, but you have to turn to the Lord and say, through Jesus, my future's in your hands. You are trustworthy and good, and you hold it, and it is secure. The very outcome I most fear, the one I can least control, you have made certain through your son, Jesus Christ. That is what heals us from the false worship of outcomes and demands. Let me finish really quick by looking at the warning and the promise. He says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So it might seem like an implication here is that God... God punishes grandchildren on behalf of their grandparents. But let me use Ezekiel 18, Scripture to inform Scripture, where he writes, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So Wyatt Graham points out that 
this statement is not about generational punishment or generational guilt. But these words are emphasizing two things. A law of nature and the superabundance of grace of God despite human sin. So what does he mean by that? We know, don't we? Don't we know that our children kind of love the things we love and begin to worship the things we worship? Like, we see that. And that is a beautiful thing and a blessing, but sometimes it's a sobering warning. But it's a law of nature that that happens. We pass those on as a warning. Like, for me, it's, it is a deep sadness when I see my sin, my weakness, my frailty, like, in the youth group, in a friend, in a family member. There, there's, that breaks me. But what is important to see here. He says he only visits the iniquity of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. It's the children who hate him as well. And that qualification is key because God does not visit the iniquity of the third and fourth generation on those who love him. And so Graham concludes, he's saying what Moses is really showing us is how small and weak and limited in scope and power is hate. Like it may seep in to the third and fourth generation, but he's, that the actual, the best translation for this passage is like, he shows his love to a thousand generations, thousands of generations. God's love is far greater than the power of hate, than the power of idolatry, than the power of sin and death. And he ultimately conquers in his son, Jesus Christ, so that we would share in his kingdom. Moses is intentionally doing here's hate here's the love of God which super abounds and what's encouraging about this promise is you fulfill it today being here in the worship of the living God you are what God promised you fulfill what in a what a promise and what a faithful God that thousands of generations later the living God is worshiped here on Lookout Mountain it's encouraging to me as we look at our faithful God. Let me close our study in prayer, and then we'll sing our closing hymn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, truly nothing can separate us from your love. Or may we see our future, what feels so uncontrollable, areas of our life that feel non-negotiable and must have, or you have said, either wait not yet, or not till the other side. Lord, may we see that you hold our future secure because of the work of Christ. May the words that, that you share, that nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing in all creation, the skies above, the earth below, underneath in the waters. Father, we are yours and you are ours. We give you praise. We thank you for that. Would you help our hearts? Would you help us steward these false loves, Lord, that we might rest fully and completely in dependence upon you? Lord, help me to stop fighting dependence and to rest in it and accept it and find that Jesus is all I need. I pray that for us all. In Christ's name, amen.